you have your Bibles, turn in them to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first five verses. If you don't have, um, if you don't have a Bible, the Scripture's in your bulletin. Um, there on the back cover, on the inside of the back cover. There's also a place to take notes there as well. So we're going to be looking at Titus 1, verses 1 to 5. So friends, listen. This is God's Word. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is God's word. So we are starting a new series, Spiritual Life Made Simple. And this is important because I think spiritual life can be really complicated. Spiritual life seems to be one of those things that the more you think about it, the more complicated it gets. The more intentional you are about spiritual growth and about spiritual development, the more complicated it gets because there are so many things that you can do. And there are so many people, there are so many books, and they all have different ways to deepen your spiritual life. And as we expose ourselves to these different ideas, there's a part of us that makes us feel like we have to do all of them. And so spiritual life gets really complicated. And so we struggle to kind of wrap our minds around all that's involved in our spiritual lives. It's not easy. Um, We tend to think then that our spiritual life becomes all about what we do. It's all about what we do. We feel like we're constantly not doing enough. Right? And it's frustrating. And so into this conversation, because it's not just Christianity, but Christianity is a part of this, and it's characteristic of the struggles that a lot of people have in Christianity. Um, And I think that the idea of the Bible is great, right? Because you know what? Like, what you need is a book, right? You need a book to just make it all simple. And so the idea of having a book that's inspired by God that will help your spiritual life grow is a great one. And then you open it, and you ask yourself, wait, wait, hold on, where, where do I start? Um, man, like, this is a long book. Um, and it's not just one story, although there really is one story, but there's like a whole bunch of stories. And, and who wrote this one, and where are they writing, and how this was written so, right? I mean, the idea that the Bible can actually complicate, it feels like it adds to the level of complexity sometimes. Um, I mean, these are things that I've thought. These are things that people that I know have thought. So if you've ever thought this, you're not alone. Okay? Um, I actually was talking to someone this week who's been a Christian for a long time. And she says that every time she reads the Bible, she struggles. She struggles. And actually, she feels like reading the Bible for her makes her relationship with God worse. Because as she reads the Bible, there's things in it that that, that just don't look right. There's things about God. There's things that he does. And she's like, I don't understand this. Like, this doesn't make sense. And this gives me a view of God that I'm not really happy about. And so when she reads, 
right? It makes her question God. Um, and she doesn't have those questions if she doesn't read, so she doesn't read. It's easy, I mean, it's understandable. I think that, um, that the Bible does feel complicated, even as someone who's been reading it for 23 years, someone who's been to seminary, someone who's studied it from beginning to end. Sometimes the more you study, the more complicated it can feel. And the question is, how do you put it all together? Okay, there are some summaries of the Bible out there, right? But they're not inspired. You know, they reflect the, uh, the personality of the author, right? They don't cover all the bases. Um, I mean, wouldn't it be great if God had inspired a summary of the spiritual life? I mean, wouldn't it be great where, if there was a place we could go where he summarized what it means for people to have a relationship with him and a thriving spiritual life? Well, there's good news. There's good news. He has done this. He's done this in this short letter. This short letter, we call it Titus. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to Titus. Um, Titus is the place where God gives us this overview of the components of a healthy spiritual life. Right? This is a life that feels close to God and close to community. Um, it's a life that shows us rest, peace, and also purpose. Okay? You can look in verse 5. This is, kind of gives you a hint at this. It says, Paul says, This is why I left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And so what we have here is the Apostle Paul is training and encouraging and coaching um, this man Titus that he has this relationship with. Um, he's coaching Titus so that Titus would know what to do in the churches in the island of Crete. Okay, And so because of this, we see that what Paul tells Titus is a summary. Right? In doing this, he's summarizing the components of the spiritual life and he makes it simple. It's as though in this letter... Paul takes the whole Bible and summarizes it in one place. So we're talking about, let me just give you a couple figures. Um, the book of Titus can fit on a single page of paper, right? Nine point font, single page of paper. It's 927, 926 words in English, okay? And so Paul summarizes our spiritual life in 926 words, I read it in one of our family worship times this week, and it took me six minutes and 23 seconds to read it out loud. Okay, so what we're talking about here is a pretty short summary. Um, it's actually the length of a long blog post. So the time it would take you to read a long blog post, you can read Paul's inspired summary of the simple Christian life. That gets me excited. That gets me excited. Um, I actually have a friend who committed to reading Titus every single day of his life because he felt like it, makes, it covers everything and it made his spiritual life simple. So what we're going to do as a new church is we are going to spend the next six weeks studying this letter verse by verse uh, and trying to simplify our spiritual lives. That's our goal as we embark on this series. Now, before we get started, I do want to make a very important point. Okay, it's so important. Put it up on the slide. Simple does not equal easy. Okay, simple doesn't mean easy, right? And we, we understand this, right? 
man, just stop eating so much. You know, there's a thing you can do with your mouth. You can close your mouth. Right? You don't have to eat four cookies. Right? right? I mean, eating less is very simple, but it's not easy. You with me? Exercise. Come on. Like, how hard is it? Just go do stuff. Go run. Go walk. Go lift. Go whatever. Go do pull-ups with me in my office. Um, it's simple, but it's not easy. Um, another example. Come on. Just take the stick and hit the ball into the hole. Right? Come on. How simple could it be? And yet, it's not easy. It's not easy. And so, I'm not going to be making this easy for you. But I am going to make it simple. It will become simple. And it will be worth the commitment that it requires. It will be worth the commitment that it requires to deepen a spiritual life. To deepen your spiritual life so that you will feel closer to God, closer to friends, and closer to your purpose in life. So Paul begins this letter, even before he tells Titus to do anything, uh, he begins this letter and he start by making it clear where spiritual life begins. And what we see in these first four verses is that it begins with God. Okay, spiritual life begins with God. And so we're going to see a few things as we look at these verses. Um, the first thing that we're going to see is Paul got his identity from God. His identity from God. Um, his identity as a person uh, stemmed from his relationship with God. We see this in verse 1. Paul says, he says, Paul, which is a common way to write letters back then. We put our name at the end. They put their name at the beginning. The way they did it seems to make a lot more sense to me, actually, um, so that you know where it's coming from. Uh, but they did it, maybe because we have envelopes, but they did it at the beginning, and so this is how they did it. And so Paul says he's, he's Paul, and then he identifies himself. And he identifies himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And there's so much here in just this phrase. There's so much here that helps us understand our spiritual lives. Um, we see here, an apostle was the highest status, the highest rank in the church when it started. The apostles were the people that Jesus hand-selected, the people that saw him risen from the dead, and Jesus appointed them to speak on his behalf. Okay, they were ambassadors for him. They were spokespeople for Jesus to share what they saw to share with uh, what they saw, and to have an authority in the church. Okay? This is what apostles were. And what is amazing, what is fantastic, what is so helpful to us in our day and age where authority has all kinds of temptations associated with it, when Paul calls himself an apostle, he doesn't start there. For Paul, his high and lofty status as an apostle comes second to his more general identity as a servant of God. And so what we see here is that in the church, the way that God intended authority to function was that if you have authority, that authority is given to you so that you can serve. So that you can serve. The more authority you have, the more that you are called to serve. 
In fact, the authority that you have was given to you so that you can serve others. And so Paul is so in touch with this that he identifies himself as a servant of God. And this is the kind of church that you want to be a part of, isn't it? Where leaders see themselves as servants. Where the pastor, where the elders, where the staff, where the volunteer leaders, where everyone sees themselves as servants. Right? And this is part of the good news. This is what God does in our lives. And so Paul calls himself a servant of God. And it's interesting there. um, Because Paul is basically saying, look, whatever God says, I obey. Paul's a servant. God is the master. And as I think about that, it makes me ask, like, what would it take for you to willingly offer yourself as a slave or a servant to someone else? And just think about that for a second. For you to be willing to become someone else's slave or someone else's servant, the words are kind of interchangeable with the word Paul uses here, what would it take for you to be willing to become someone else's slave? I mean, what if they were to tell you to do something awful? What if they were to tell you to do something you didn't want to do or you thought that would be harmful, but you had to do it? Paul identifying himself first and foremost as a servant or a slave of God was 100% based on the fact that he had a relationship with God. Okay? And so his identity comes from God and it was because he had a relationship with God. A relationship with God. And it's almost as though Paul wants to remind Titus and then us of who God is. Why would you call yourself a slave of God? Well, let me just tell you about this God and let's see what you think. Okay? And so Paul says in verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So what we see here is Paul introduces us to God. He says that God chooses people. You see that? God's elect. God chooses people. And it's interesting that a lot of the ways that the idea of God electing people is is used, um, but I want to show you what was probably in Paul's mind, okay? Because when you were to, if you were to talk about God's elect in the first century, there'd be one thing that would come to mind for people that have been around the Bible, um, and that one thing would have been Israel, right? It would have been Israel. They were God's chosen people. And let me show you in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. It says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Okay, so there we have God's election. He chose this one nation. And then it becomes pretty clear, verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But... It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And so when you think about election, there's lots of things that can be said about election, but this is the point I want you to get across, is that election means that God chooses you. And the fact that God chooses you means that you don't have to do anything in order to have a relationship with God. Okay? That's the point 
that Paul wants to remind us. He wants to remind us. God chooses people not because they're perfect. Right? Didn't we just hear this? Jesus said, I have come not for the righteous, but for sinners. In Mark 2.17. And that's good news. Because if you're not good enough, that's okay. Your performance isn't the basis of God's election. God chooses you because he loves you. And he sets his love on you. He keeps this oath. And so for us, what is this promise? Right? In Deuteronomy, God made this promise to the fathers of Israel, and that's why they are his elect. Well, what's the promise today? Well, verse 2 in Titus 1 goes on to tell us. So he says, God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And so we have this promise this promise, it's a promise of eternal life. Eternal life. Now, this is a very churchy kind of word. I don't think I ever hear this outside of church circles. I'm a lot of talk about eternal life. Um, but this is what God promised. And we need to understand that eternal life, this is, the, this is the perfected life of the future. Okay? And you have to understand it's both quantity and quality. Okay? When the Bible talks about eternal life, it's talking about quantity, like the length of it, how long it lasts, but it's also talking about the quality of life, right? How would you rate the quality of your life? Right, think about it. How would you rate the quality of your life? Are you living the life that you want to be living? Does your life have purpose? Does it have meaning? Does it have significance? Do you have peace? Do you have rest? Well, this is what God promised in the beginning, from before time began, right? Before the ages began, God made this promise of eternal life. And when he created, he manifested this promise, this promise. God created life, and his intention for creation was infinitely good. God created this world full of beauty. I mean, this amazing world that we live in. And he created people to enjoy it and to have a relationship with him where, where we would know the love and the goodness both of our creator and also of what he's created. And so eternal life is this life where all of our needs are abundantly cared for. Eternal life means it's where there's real purpose and satisfaction, where relationships are perfect, okay? And I don't mean perfect like Stepford wife kind of perfection, right? That's not real. But think about real perfect relationships, right? Um, where all of our work has meaning, this is the future, right? This is the future that God has in store and he has promised to give this. He offered it to us in creation. Sin has vandalized what God has done. Sin has corrupted, our sin has corrupted all of the beauty and the perfection that God created life to have. And so God has made a promise now that he's going to restore that in the future. And so we don't have it yet, Right? That's why Paul says, um, he says there in verse 2, in hope of eternal life. You see that phrase? It's in hope. That means it's in the future. Right? But what's interesting about this hope is that it's not uncertain. This hope is sure because Jesus rose from the dead. Okay? So let me talk about this a little bit. 
Um, I was talking to somebody this week, um, and he said, you know, I have a midterm coming up on Tuesday, and I really hope I get an A. That's fair, common, um, and it's what's important to, to realize, though, is that his confidence in his A is based on his studying, on his preparation, and then his performance on this test, okay? And so his hope fluctuates, and it's all based on him, right? Well, the gospel works a little bit differently, um, I've shared this story about five months ago, but I think it bears repeating in terms of this idea of hope. Um, in college exams, professors will often allow their students to bring with them a cheat sheet into the final or into a midterm, right? They get a single sheet of paper that's blank, and they can write on both sides. So you can bring in anything that you can fit onto a single sheet of paper. And so students fill their legal cheat sheets, right? That's what they are. They're legal, but they're cheat sheets uh, with notes, example problems, formulas, facts, all in this effort to get an A. Okay, well, once in an introductory philosophy class, a student brings in his sheet, but it was blank. They brought in a blank sheet of paper, blank on both sides, front and back. This isn't blank on this side. That's why I'm only showing you this side. So this, this is blank on both sides. Watch over here and then over here, right? Blank on both sides. Um, his classmates were dumbfounded. They started making fun of him. They were like, what, did you memorize everything? And he's like, nope. And he just kind of had this smile on his face. And so when the exam started, the student took his blank sheet of paper and placed it on the floor next to his desk. Five minutes after the exam started, a doctorate philosophy student comes walking into the classroom and stands on this single sheet of paper. Some of you know what happened. Um, others of you haven't gotten it yet. So the professor said anything that you could fit on a single sheet of paper. And so for the rest of the time, the student just asked this graduate level philosophy student all the questions and he aced the test. Friends, this is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture. So this student's hope was rock solid. This person's hope was completely confident and sure. Right? Because it wasn't based on him. It was based on the one who had all the answers. Right? This is a picture of the gospel. This is why biblical hope for eternal life is absolutely steadfast and sure. Because it's not based on our preparation or our performance. Biblical hope is based on what God has already done for us in Jesus. God loves us so much that He came in Jesus and He lived a perfect life. He performed perfectly and then He died for our sins and He rose again so that our hope would be sure. When you trust Jesus, when you put your faith in Him, your hope for eternal life is sure. Nothing can take it away from you. That's good news. That is good news. That when you stand before God and you stand before His judgment seat, you will not stand alone. And the one who stands with you will speak up on your behalf and say, no, he or she wasn't perfect, but I was. 
and they were trusting in me. And God will accept you blameless in his presence with great joy. That's the gospel. That is what would make someone willing to be the slave of another. If God has done this for us, that's how you can derive your identity from him. And so for Paul, for Paul, this this is where life begins. Your spiritual life needs to begin here. It needs to start here, and then it needs to restart here. Right? You need to constantly be coming back to this place. The same place where Paul starts the letter, where he begins to describe God and God's grace and this salvation and this hope for eternal life. Because sometimes when you start here, you have great days. Sometimes when you start here, you have awful days. Days that make you want to throw in the towel, run kicking and screaming, hide yourself under your bed, go and eat more than you should. I mean, all these things come, right? Our days fluctuate up and down, and so we need to start and restart our spiritual lives here in this place. Are you with me? Are you with me? When I realized that God did this for me, I said, okay, I will be your slave. Because I know that there is nothing that you would ask me to do that wouldn't be good for me. But you have proven that I can trust you. This is a good place to be. Um, there is a, there's a phrase in the middle of verse 2 that again talks more about who God is. Right? This is a God uh, who elects. This is a God who gives eternal life. This is God who guarantees our hope. Right? This is the God that we're learning about here. This is why Paul starts here. Well, he says something really kind of interesting. I don't know if you noticed it in verse 2. He says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. I don't know what you thought about that. Did you stop and think about that? Um, I think some people will be like, Yeah, well, of course God doesn't lie. Like, he's not supposed to do that. So, of course, he doesn't do that. Um, This was a big deal in the first century. I think this is also a big deal today, but let me me start with the first century because it was super clear. If you do any readings about the gods of the first century, the gods that were outside of Christianity, outside of Judaism, um, the rest of the gods were crazy. Crazy. Um, Let me just read you a quote. This is from N.T. Wright. He said, this truth that God never lies was extraordinary news to the average first century person who was used to there being many gods, none of whom could be relied upon. The only thing you really knew about the gods was that there was a lot of them and that at any moment, this god or perhaps that goddess might either take a fancy to you and do something really nice or take a dislike to you because perhaps you'd forgotten to offer a sacrifice at the right time or the appropriate place, and they would turn and punish you. The gods in the first century were unpredictable. They were potentially dangerous and even spiteful. Part of the good news of the early Christian gospel was that the one true God, the God who came from the promises of Israel, was now making himself known 
in and to all the world as the utterly reliable God, the one that you can trust. Nobody would have imagined that gods couldn't lie. It just wasn't on the map. Gods did whatever the heck they wanted to do. And they would lie to people. They would lie to other gods. I mean, you can, it's almost like a soap opera. If you read some of the stuff that Zeus did, that Aphrodite, I mean, you can read some of the chronicles um, in, in what was believed back then. And, um, and so for, but, but, but Paul, he wants us to know. It's, it's like he's describing for us this God. Oh, this God, he says, and you've got to understand that you can trust this God. This God never lies. If this God promises something, it will come true. We saw that in City Bible reading with Joshua 21. God brought him into the promised land and all of his promises came true. And so, because of this, because this is who God is, Paul then says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. And so we see here this relationship between Paul and Titus. And what does he wish for Titus? He says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want you, Titus, because you have this common relationship with God. I want you to have grace and peace. Now, grace, grace, this is God's extraordinary favor. His extravagant grace is what moves God to love us so much that he would send his son to perform for us and to take away our sins. Right? This is an expression of God's extravagant grace. And Paul says, I want you to live by this grace. I want you to know that this is the God that has manifested himself. He's promised in ages past, but he has revealed it. He has manifested his promises coming true um, in Jesus. And it's interesting because as you read this letter, Paul does this sort of double thing. It's like a one-two punch. God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And there's times where Paul actually calls Jesus our God and Savior. And so the Christians have always believed there's only one God, and yet that one God has manifested himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, and so what I think about, what I think his purpose here is he's saying, like, I want you to have both grace and peace from God above, who is in control, who promises and controls everything. Like, I want you to have his grace and his peace. Because if he's in control, you can trust him. But not just from the God above. I want you also to have the grace and the peace from the God who came down below. When Jesus Christ came to earth, nothing about God would ever be the same. Because Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus is the one who shows how much God loves us. Who shows how God's promises are going to be true. I mean, Israel in the Old Testament, they understood something about forgiveness and the need for sins to be atoned for. But not in their wildest dreams did they imagine that God would come himself and take on the sins of the world. 
I mean, there are hints of it. You can see pictures of it, but you really wouldn't necessarily get that until after God came in Jesus. And so it's this extravagant grace that gives us peace. When you spend time with God, because your relationship with Him begins, your spiritual life begins with Him, when you spend time with God, it ought to leave you in a place of peace. Because one thing that God wants to make sure that you never forget is that he loves you, that he has adopted you into his family if you're trusting Jesus. This is why it's good news. And so Paul summarizes God the Father and Christ Jesus by describing, by just using the word Savior. By using the word Savior. God saves us from our sins. The sins that we commit the things that we struggle with. Jesus saves us from these things. He saves us from guilt and power so that we can be forgiven and we can grow. This is where it starts. Dwell on this and you will experience God's grace, the hope of eternal life and his peace. And if you don't have this, then I would invite you to trust Jesus. I invite you just to confess your sins and ask God to forgive you and trust that what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection, that he did that for you. When you believe that, God gives you his grace and his peace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now with grateful hearts with joy-filled celebration. God, this is news that is good enough to share. God, thank you for your grace and your peace, for promising it before time began. Thank you that eternal life is both a quantity and a quality. Oh God, help us to remember this. Help us to come back to this every morning. Help us to start our days remembering that we have your grace and your peace. And Lord, let us walk in this. Let these things change us because we have not just spent time with you, but we have rehearsed your goodness and your loving kindness in our lives. And for those who are here, Lord, who haven't yet put their faith in you, would you draw them to yourself? Help them to see your goodness and your kindness, that you have come for people just like them, not perfect not perfect, and you're willing to forgive. Help them to trust in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.